Well, once in a while, I, uh, I go through my week, and I uh, am set to preach or teach in this direction, and, and I feel really led to, you know, stay in the series we're in, but do something just a, a bit different. And, and when that happens, uh, some of you really sharp people will notice a mismatch between what it says in our bulletin, uh, the title and the topic, because those are printed beforehand professionally, can you tell? And, and then the notes page that you have in there, which is printed in-house on Friday, uh, which is when I have to get my outline in. And, and so today you'll notice that nourishment is in the bulletin, but faith is on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the outline, and that's because I felt pretty led this week, very strongly led, to um, do a little bit of a side journey in the series that we're in. We're in a series on belief and faith called I Believe, John's chapters 1 through 4, looking at all the things Jesus brought to this earth to help us believe, and it hit me that I have yet to define my terms. We're eight weeks into this thing, and I've never defined faith for you. I've never said this is what the Bible means by faith and by belief. And there's an amazing passage in one of my favorite books in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that theologians call the Hall of Faith, that begins by giving us a very clear definition of faith. And so I'm going to do that this week. I probably should have done it at the beginning of the series. And then next week, we'll pick up on nourishment, John chapter 4, and cap this thing off. And I think you're going to find this very relevant. So as our Cactus Campus joins us right now, Mountain Valley, uh, as well as our venue right next door, and then our chapel across campus, we're all together in the Word now. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. God, I, I do thank you for your Word. There's so much in it that I... <laughs> As you know, I'm spending all my life plumbing the depths of it. And so I pray that as we uh, unpack just a couple of verses today, but I think really relevant verses to where our culture is at and where many of us are at, I pray, God, that you speak to our hearts and our minds individually and then certainly collectively to us as a whole, as a congregation. And I pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. amen. So if there is one thing, and I don't think I need to convince you guys about this, that is really clear about American culture today, it's that we live in a post-Christian, increasingly secular society. I'm going to start a little bit on a downer today just so that we all get on the same page, but I haven't read a demographer yet or a culture watcher yet that doesn't at least see that. And you don't have to watch MTV or VH1 or Two and a Half Men to figure it out. Uh, that, the, 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 that the country that we had 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, the country that Winston Churchill linked arms with during World War II, is a very different country now today. And, and it's not just morality and values that have been waning, but even people's view of religion and faith has drastically changed. Uh, probably the most startling evidence of this is what demographers call the rise of the nuns. Not nuns like in the Catholic sense, N-U-N-S, but nuns in the sense of N-O-N-E-S. It's those that on recent polls, and, and they're asked what their religious affiliation is, they check off none. And it's staggering what's happened just in the last decade here in our country because now we live in a country in which a minimum of one in five people check off none saying they have no religious affiliation at all. And David Kinnaman, the president of the Barna Group, actually estimates that this number is more like one in three Americans when you account for the unchurched, the never-churched, and the skeptics that exist in our culture. 
No matter how you slice it, we're in a different day and age in American culture. I mean, as a guy who studied some church history over the years, and this just seems so weird to even think about it. Back in uh, England in the 1850s when Charles Spurgeon was preaching in London, uh, reporters used to hang on every one of his words, and the things that he would say on Sunday would actually appear in the headlines on Monday. I mean, can you imagine if there was a reporter from the AZ Republic here hanging on my every word so it would appear for all of Phoenix tomorrow? And that just, it doesn't even compute in the paradigm that you and I have today. Why? Because it's a different world. Secularism is now firmly rooted in our culture, and no one is surprised anymore at half the things that go on. Now, that's the negative part. Uh, let me add a positive twist to this that will bounce us into our discussion of faith, and that's this, that though things have arguably gone downhill uh, in our lifetime, the reality is there still are a lot of vestiges of Christianity, very much in American culture. I mean, 20% might declare that they are none, but in all the recent polls I've seen, 70% of Americans still claim the label Christian. And though some of you doubt whether they all really are, and that's for another sermon, the reality is, is that they are at least identifying with the things of Jesus. But we still live in a country that has national holidays around Christmas and Easter. Those are religious holidays. We still use a Christian calendar marked by B.C. and A.D. Uh, most people know that there are things called churches and that they're open to them on Sunday morning. I mean, those are the things that are still left in our culture. And probably most potent to me, and you and I get down on this, but we shouldn't because it's a good thing, our culture today still uses a lot of religious language and we should be grateful for that. Uh, people use the word God, not just to swear, but even in polite culture. I, I mean, a politician can freely end a speech today by saying, God bless you and God bless America, and CNN won't get all freaked out if he does that. Uh, you can have a natural disaster in our country today, and you can, without reprise, say to somebody, I'll be praying for that or pray for that. They won't let you do it in school, but you can still say that I'm going to pray for that. And probably my favorite is that right now, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but in our secular culture, faith is really in. I hear people all the time that don't even, I think, have a personal relationship with God say, I'm a woman of faith or I'm a man of faith. I have faith. And though they might mean something different than how we might see it or have different objects of their faith, we still have a crossover there with culture in talking about the things that are dear to us. And it's that faith thing that I need you to latch on to today. Because i got to tell you this, guys, and some of you already know this, but faith is absolutely central to the Christian truth claim. It's the heart of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. Paul the Apostle summed, up, summed it up so well when he said at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, now these three remain when everything is said and done, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So love is more important or greater than faith, but faith is right there with it, and you and I would do good in our culture to be able to have an intelligent discussion about what faith is and why with our culture it's so important. So let's do that right now. In our time remaining, I want to do simply two things. I want to define our terms very clearly. What is faith and what does the Bible want to be the object of our faith? 
And then secondly, why is this so important? And so let's begin here, and let's give a working definition of faith, and it's this. Faith is trust or belief in that which is not fully known or understood. I know this is kind of heady for you, and some of you are even wondering, where's God and all of that? Well, just bear with me. Uh, Before you even bring God into the equation, and the Bible, by the way, is the one who gives us this argument, faith by itself is, dis, is, dis, is defined as trust or belief in something or someone that is not fully known or understood. So watch this. Faith by its very nature takes a piece of partially understood knowledge or truth and then in order to get the most mileage out of it, it trusts in it. It believes in it enough that even though you don't fully understand it, you can go further with it. And by the way, this isn't just a Christian definition. This is how most philosophers and almost all religions would define what exactly faith as its essence is. Let me show you this from the Bible, because the Bible's got a great way of saying this. In Hebrews chapter 11, the famous hall of faith, it begins this way. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, this is rich. you got to see what's going on here. Uh, notice for, at first here that what it's telling us is that something is not completely seen, right? It's still in hope form. It's not completely understood or realized. That's the premise of this verse here. But nevertheless, I don't know if you've caught it, there is assurance and there is still conviction even though something is not seen. And that is faith. Faith by its very nature is the great gap bridger, bridging the gap between knowing something in part, but then having the assurance or confidence to move forward and act upon it. And here's the cool thing about this definition, is that you and I, your neighbor, your friends, your co-workers, your teachers, whatever, they exercise this kind of faith in multiple ways every single day of their lives. I mean, that's why people can say, I have faith. Because it doesn't even, we haven't even brought the Lord into this yet, but faith by its very nature is something you and I cannot live without. It's got a funny illustration. When I was uh, dating my wife Kim almost 30 years ago, I was in seminary in my graduate program, and she was a junior at Miami University in southern Ohio. And so we were separated by uh, a real far ways, and we would uh, see each other about every other weekend. And uh, one weekend that I wasn't going down to see her, I called her at at the university and said, uh, what are you doing this weekend? And I'll never forget this. She said, oh, I'm going to go skydiving. And I thought, you're going to go skydiving? Like, why would you want to go sky? It's not wartime. Why would you want to go skydiving? Why would you choose to jump out of an airplane? And you got to remember, this was the old days. I mean, now when these kids jump out of airplanes, they're strapped to an expert, and that expert helps them float to the ground. They hadn't thought of that back then. What they did back then is they put you in an airplane, put you through a six-hour class, shove you out of the plane with a tether, hope your parachute opens up, and then hope it holds you until you float to the ground. That's what my wife was going to do that weekend. And I can remember saying to her, I think you're crazy. And she said, I think it's fun. And I said, why don't you be more like me? Why don't you just enjoy cars, like fast cars? (laughs) And we got in this big debate because she said, well, it's just as dangerous you going 90 miles an hour down a back road in Ohio than it is me jumping out of an airplane. I said, no, it's not. 
I said, I think the statistics are more on my side, but I didn't want to check it out. And so we were, we were arguing that. And you know, we both realized, and then this just life, is that it took faith for both of us to enjoy our hobbies. I mean, for Kim to jump out of an airplane, as crazy as I think it is, takes faith. It's not blind faith. She took a class. She had a main shoot, a backup shoot. She trusted that all that would keep her safe as she floated to the ground. Likewise, when I'm in my little sports car uh, going down the road, or I got invited to a, a racetrack recently in which I was taking a BMW M around a very uh, one-mile track, and it was just a blast, I, I trust that that BMW and my skills are not going to get me killed. And, and that's the point, guys, is that you and I, and these are just two small examples, we exercise this kind of faith every day. We take a partial bit of knowledge, not fully understood, and we trust in it, to the point that we have confidence and assurance to move forward. And maybe this will help. I've used this chart for years. This is a, a great way, I think, for, for any of us who use the word faith to understand what we mean by it. There's, there's actually two extremes of faith. One is not healthy and one almost doesn't matter. The unhealthy extreme of faith is what we call blind faith. And, and then the one that doesn't matter because it's almost benign and, and, and just so much part of everyday life that you don't even notice it is sight faith. Uh, blind faith, the extreme there, is simply those that have faith in something or someone without any reason or evidence at all. And this is not a good thing. I'm not saying we should ever have blind faith. So primitive cultures that worship the sun, that would be an example of blind faith. I mean, there's no evidence at all that the sun is God, that the sun is, is personal, and that you can know the sun. It's just there and bright. And yet, in your ignorance, there are some cultures that worship that and i know people that exercise blind faith all the time where they're trusting in something or someone without anywhere near having enough evidence and we all look at them and go man that's risky that's blind faith uh, but on the other side of that the other extreme is sight faith that's trusting in something that really almost takes no faith to trust in it's a no-brainer it's empirical it's repeatable it's predictable and though it might take faith it's really not even worth mentioning. So an example here would be the chair, the stool that I use uh, each weekend. I can see it, I can touch it, I can see how well made that it is. It's thick, it's sturdy, and I've sat in it like hundreds of times in front of you. So if I, I've always think when I use this illustration, wouldn't it be just hilarious if it broke? But I, I, uh, I, I set the chair down here, and my question is, does it take faith for me to sit in this and expect it to hold me up or not? Well, not really, but technically speaking, yes. I mean, technically speaking, I'm exercising just a small amount of faith, and again, it worked, where, it, where, where I know that it's going to hold me up. And again, we do that all the time every day. It's called sight faith. We see something, we know it, and yeah, we got to take a little step of faith, but it's hardly worth mentioning. Here's my point. Most of life is lived in the middle. Most of life is lived not with blind faith, thankfully, or with sight faith, because we don't have that all the time, but it's lived here. So for you business guys, you make a business deal, and I'm telling you, hopefully it's not blind faith, but you don't know for sure how it's going to work. You're trusting your own judgment. You're trusting a fragile economy. You're trusting the other person. It, it takes faith, and it's somewhere here in the middle. I mean this with all uh, sincerity. I'm not making a joke here. They all laughed at this last night. But marriage is right here in the middle, right? 
I mean, when I stood up there on June 18, 1988, and said, I do to Kim, that was a huge step of faith. Not because she's not trustworthy. Of course she is. This wasn't blind faith. I love the woman. I knew the woman. She had a good track record. She comes from good stock. I mean, you know, I, I, I definitely, I, I looked at her whole family before I said I do. And psychological assessments and everything. And so, you know, it wasn't blind. But I also, there's a reason that I had to pledge to her my faith and her to me my faith because we didn't know everything. And some of you have been really burned by this. You've been in marriages where you realized the person wasn't trustworthy. They really did let you down. They, they broke the faith. And by the way, uh, humbly speaking, all of us are in that fragility, if you will, because life takes faith. Marriage takes faith. Business takes faith. Relationships take faith. And obviously, we're going to see here in a second, God takes faith. Uh, but, but before we even get to that, just simply see, and this is a good summary here of where we've come to, is that we're saying two things about faith. We're saying, one, that all of us use it every day in our lives, whether we're conscious of it or not. And that secondly, we, we, we know this is true because we take what knowledge we have and we accelerate it or, or get more mileage out of it by resting and trusting in it. But it does take faith. So I love how the great American preacher George Buttrick said it years ago. He said, faith must never be counter to reason, yet it must always go beyond reason, for the nature of man is more than rationalism. And that's the point. You can try to stick to just pure rationalism, that which you know, but you will never love if you do that. You'll never take a risk if you do that. You'll never have faith if you do that. And even in our wacko culture today, people still want faith. And that's how it works. Life takes faith. Now, with this understanding, we now get to the crux of the issue, and that is that when it comes to God, what he asks of us is simply this, to take the faith that we have. The Bible says every one of us has a certain measure of faith, a certain capacity to trust or not. We all have that. To take that faith, God says, and to transfer it from resting solely on yourself or your spouse or your kids or the economy or your 401k or your job or your talents or whatever it might be that you trust in to not be an idol worshiper by making those things first place things. And the Bible, God asks us to move those to a second place status and first and foremost place our faith in God. This is why faith is so important. Because God says that he is a jealous God and that the number one thing he wants us to trust in, to place our faith in, to choose to focus upon in life is him. And it's not that the other things aren't important. They are. But they are things that need to be second place status. As C.S. Lewis argued, when you learn to do that, you actually find more joy because your joy will come in God and those other things. So look at how Hebrews will go on to say this to us. Look at verse 6. We're only looking at two verses in Hebrews. Verse 1 and now verse 6. And verse 6 says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him, meaning God. Because who would ever draw near to God, now watch this, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek, or as one translation says, earnestly seek him. Now, keeping in mind our definition of faith from verse 1, trust or belief in that which is not fully known or understood, notice with me that verse 6 here tells us that we need to believe 
in two distinct things here about God if we're ever going to have true faith in him. And that is that we need to believe in who he is, and then I'll show you how this works in a minute, the promises of his word. So again, notice with me verse 6, and it says that we need to believe in who God is. It says, for whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists. Or as one translation says, and this is even better toward the Greek, we need to believe that God is. That he is who he says he is. That he is a self-revealing God who has revealed himself in history and even in our lives today through his word and through the person of Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself in a certain way as a certain person, as the God he is, and you need to believe in him. And so this is a very important distinction to make. Hebrews is not just saying just believe in any God you want to or believe in a God of your own making. It's saying believe in the God who is, and the assumption here in the context, the God of the Bible. So I like how F.F. F. Bruce says that he's probably one of the better experts on the book of Hebrews in our last generation. He says this is not belief in the existence of a God that is meant, but belief in the existence of the God who once declared his will to the fathers, to the prophets, and in these last days has spoken in and through his Son. And so this faith that's directed to God is to God as he reveals himself to us. That's the faith that God is after in you and me. And the reason that this is so important, and I'll comment more on this as we wrap up in a minute, is because I think this is where you and I veer just a little bit differently from our culture today. Our culture today wants to be content with a general faith in the goodness of life and if we bring God into it at all, it's just a general faith in God as we might define him. So, you know, in, in the early days of my faith, that was when the movie Star Wars came out. And so back in the 80s, it was, may the force be with you. That was a way that many of my contemporaries, you know, kind of like to talk about faith. I got faith in God and, you know, I don't really know who he is or what he's about or anything like that. Never read the Bible, but hey, he's a force and may the force be with you. Or how about Alcoholics Anonymous? I'm a big fan of the recovery movement. It has helped so many people. But here's where they start with God. You need to believe in a power greater than yourself. And again, I'm not knocking that. I mean, to be super fair, that's a really good start. It is, and that's helped a lot of people. It's just that the Bible comes along and says that's not enough. There is more. There is more to who God is and we need to believe in the God who is. That's where our faith needs to be directed. Who is that? The sovereign, uncreated, all-knowing, all-loving, personal, perfect, holy, and existing in the person of Jesus Christ, God. That's who God is. And that's who the Bible says that we need to place our faith in. And it bears mentioning right now, and this is really important, is why I bored you earlier. Oop, no, go back. Um, oh, Nope, you guys are good. I'm messing up, sorry. Uh, it bears mentioning right now, this thing, by the way, is so new to me, isn't it? I mean, it's becoming my friend, but it's just so new to me that I'm, I'm still trying to get used to using it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying at 51 to change. So, uh, and some of you have not been good role models for me. This bears <laughs> mentioning here that this is not blind faith, and this is also not sight faith. You know, sometimes people accuse Christians, I've been hearing it for years, that you guys are just a bunch of mindless idiots, you know, that, that just believe the Bible blindly, you know, and you believe in a, a God that's not really there. And I mean, I've heard it all. And, uh, and, and I think to myself, you know, of all the criticisms people might give toward Christianity, 
that is the one that I think is the most unfair to me. Because for 2,000 years, one thing that Christians have been very, very cognizant about is to make sure we have a reason for the faith that we have. The Bible actually says that. And so I didn't become a Christian because out of some deep-seated emotional need, though I have them, but it wasn't that. I, I became a Christian at the age of 17 because it made sense to me. Because when I looked at the truth claims of Jesus and how the Bible explains this wacko world that we live in and how the Bible explains me on my good days and my bad days, and how the Bible explains God, and how the Bible explains all of you, it made sense to me. And so there's reasons that we believe. It's not blind faith, but it's also not sight faith or it wouldn't be faith. As the Bible itself says, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Uh, you know, I, I, now we can use this thing here. I'll go back to my, my little monitor here. You know, um, for about 2,000 years, there have been a whole line of, of reasons or arguments, if you I hate the word arguments, but, but, but apologetics, they call it, for why you and I believe what we believe, evidences that we have. They give us assurance that our faith is not a blind faith, but all these do is get you started. you still got to take the step to trust God. Uh, so you have creation. I mean, one of the greatest arguments about theologians over the years is, go watch a baby being born. <laughs> go to the Grand Tetons. Go to Yosemite. Uh, take a cruise of Alaska and ask yourself, design or chance? <laughs> uh, God or just randomness? I, I mean, creation screams that there certainly must be a creator. Uh, how about historical evidences? The fact that God has broken into this world, recorded in, in, in all of the Bible, from the Exodus event to the coming of Jesus, and even if you let him today, he can break into your world. But we have prophecies separated by hundreds of years, uh, different settings, different books that were written uh, that now appear in the Bible that, that show that God said something, and hundreds of years later, it came true. I just explained to you the cogency of the Bible. Francis Schaeffer, one of the better apologists in the last century, once said that, that the Christian truth claim is the most rational truth claim out there. And though that might sound arrogant to some of you, I would say check that out. I mean, when I was search, investigating the Christian truth claim, I was looking at other religions. I was looking at my father's a, sci a science guy and evolutionist. I was looking at all of that stuff. And one of my biggest questions I had was really not about God, because I really believed in him since I was a little guy. My biggest question in becoming a Christian was, what does the Bible say about this crazy world that we live in? What explanation does evolution give for that? What explanation does Marxism give for that? What explanation does naturalism give for that? How do you explain the evil in this world, the good in this world, and the fact that it exists both in me and out there. How do you explain that? And what's to be done about that? Again, this is for another discussion, but, but for me, the cogency of the Bible's explanation of those things has been eminently faith-building. We have philosophical evidences for God, causation arguments, ontological arguments, uh, transcendent arguments. And then again, we're thankful to Schaefer for this one. Schaefer argued also that Christianity is the most livable worldview out there. Just try it. You'll like it, is what he said. And so I love how one of my seminary professors, again, almost 25, 30 years ago now, used to say at Charles Feinberg, he used to say that he can't prove Christianity like you would prove something empirical or scientific. I mean, I can prove gravity by just going like that, right? 
and, and it falls, and as Newton did, you know, you can say, well, there's gravity. And, and I can show it, and I can repeat it, and I can see it. A again, that's proof. But I can't prove God that way. He doesn't fall just under scientific purview. But the good news about that is you can't prove love either that way. I mean, some people think they can. Some people say, I can prove love by buying you flowers. Well, it takes more than that. And the reality is, is that you prove love through a lot of other evidences uh, when it comes to showing that you really have love or that love is real. And it's the same with God. And so the first direction or object that the Bible calls us to place our faith in is the God who is, and we need to be very clear about who he is, and thankfully the Bible is. Now, as you're chewing on that, uh, very quickly notice with me one other thing that the Bible says that we need to place our faith in, and this one's very important, and that is the promises of his word. And, and Hebrews 6, or 11, 6, will go on to say it this way, that whoever would draw near to God must believe, now here it is, that he rewards those who seek him. And some of you are saying right now, well, it doesn't say anything about promises there. Well, it kind of does. Uh, the question that you need to ask if you're thinking about this verse is this, what does it mean to seek God, right? What's involved in seeking God? What, what, what does God want us to do to seek him? And, and what the Bible is so very clear on is that the way you seek God is you read about him in his word, you pray to him, you start to trust in him, and as you read about him, one of the things you notice about this book is that it contains thousands of promises. And by promise, I just mean thousands of things that God says about himself that he says about you, that he says about this world, that he says about the nature of reality, about how he is going to function and what he will do. And those are promises, and some are good and some are bad. Some are easy to swallow, some are really tough. And you trust in those. And the Bible says that we are to have faith in the things that the Bible says about who God is and what we call his promises. And so again, I like how F.F. F. Bruce says it in commenting on this passage. He says, this kind of faith consists simply in taking God at his word and directing our lives accordingly. He says, in Old Testament times, there were many men and women who had nothing but the promises of God to rest on, without any visible evidence that these promises would ever be fulfilled. Yet so much did these promises mean to them that they regulated the whole course of their lives in their light. He says the promise is related to a state of affairs belonging to the future, but these people acted as if the state of affairs were already present, so convinced they were that God could and would fulfill what he has promised. And so that's faith. It's taking all the promises of God. By the way, the things that we have been seeing in this series that we're in, what Jesus has promised to bring us, things like his presence, his forgiveness, his reception of us, his revelation to us, his glory shown to us, his love of us, even tough at times, or his rest and let us in, his spirit given to us. It takes all of those things and says, I trust this, I believe in this, because I know they're going to guide me to God. And so what I simply need you to see is that this faith that we're talking about, this trust or belief in that which is not fully known or understood when applied to God, has a clear laser beam focus. We trust in who he is, how he has revealed himself, and what he has said, his promises to us. And when we do, we start to go from black and white to technicolor in our spiritual lives. That's the promise that God gives us. Now, one last thing, one last story, and then we're going to be done. Here is why 
all of this is so important today and why you and I need to have intelligent conversations with our culture that, quite frankly, is very warm to things of faith. And it's this, that faith is absolutely essential if one wants to know and experience God. Look with me how Hebrews 11, verse 6 says it. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. I looked at that word impossible in the original Greek that Hebrews was written in this week. It's a fascinating word. It literally means impossible. <laughs> it, it literally means that, 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 that without faith, you will not know God, you will not understand God, and worse, you won't experience God. That's what it means. And this is why faith, as opposed to even good works, or just being a good guy, or doing the best you can, which are all good things, that's why those things actually matter a lot less than the composition of your heart and the faith that you're placing or not placing in God through Jesus. I mean, God has revealed himself in a certain way to us, and he has said, you need, if you want to know me, you're going to trust in the way that I am. And though some cry foul at this point, they say, gosh, Christians are so narrow-minded and intolerant, and da 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 I have, two, I have two responses to that. One, we're not making this stuff up. I mean, I, I'm, don't shoot the messenger. This is what the Bible says. If you want me to teach you something different, I will, but then I got God to contend with. So I would rather tell you what the Bible says, and, and then if you don't like it, you take it to him. But don't send me emails on that one. And then the second thing that I would say uh, about this is that think of, and, and I mean this tenderly, think of your parenting, and, and you'll start to see why we really can't fault God for this. What do I mean by that? I, I have three kids, Hannah, Abby, and Paul. Uh, they're all grown adults now, but, you know, I have my own parenting woes like everybody else does. And, you know, say my son one day would go off the deep end and come to me and say, you know what, um, I, 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 I know you're kind of my dad, but, but I just, I don't know, I don't think you're very good. And, and, and I don't think you're very smart. I mean, how he could say that, I don't know. I don't think you're very good. I don't think you're very smart. Though I have argued, by the way, when he went off to college, my IQ dropped off by about 60. And so, uh, you know, I don't think you're very smart. And, and I think you're really from Yugoslavia, and, 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 and you're, you're an agent. And I mean, so, like all these things, and I'd be going, well, son, you got it all wrong. I, I'm your dad. You, you were born in, in Detroit. I know you're not proud of that, but you were born in Detroit. And, 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 and you know, we've been together all your life, and and I do love you, and I'm the one that paid for your college, and, you know, we're, I mean, all these things. And, and, and what if he just rejected all that and said, no, I'd rather see you differently? I, I'd just rather see, I mean, it would be inane, right? I mean, you just go, well, okay, I think we got a real long road to, to go here with him. No, a good parent asks their kids, they expect their kids to see them as they are, and if they don't at least do that, then you're not going to get very far with your kid. So why would we think it's any different with God? Many people today want to see God as they want to see him. They want to invent Somebody once said that God created us in his image, and ever since then we've been returning the favor. So that's basically what we do, <laughs> that, that we want to create God in our own image of what we want him to be. And, and then when a pastor or somebody says, hey, I don't think that's really the deal, all of a sudden we cry foul, and it just doesn't make sense. You wouldn't function that way in any other aspect of life. You wouldn't do that to your boss. You wouldn't do that to your spouse. You wouldn't do that to your kid. So why would we do that to God? That just doesn't seem fair. No, it seems more fair that he is who he is, and he asks us to believe in him as he is, 
and that that belief matters more than anything else. Because you see, the converse of this is also true, and let's stop being negative. No more negativity for the rest of the six minutes we have before the communion table. When we do believe and trust in God for who he is and rest in the promises that he has given, here's what the Bible promises. His power will be unleashed in our lives, the kind of power in which we get a vision of who he is. Faith begets faith. And we will find meaning, purpose, healing, and hope in our journey with God. Now listen very carefully to what I said. I did not say all, all your problems will be solved. I hate it when people say that. Just trust in God and your finances will start to work. Your marriage will be healed. Your kids are going to turn out great. I go, what are you smoking? What Bible are you reading? Because guess what? None of that is a promise. There's lots of problems that you have, even as a follower of God. In fact, some argue that your problems might even get greater because now you're walking the narrow way. But what God does say is he's going to replace all of that with peace and purpose and meaning and that sweet spot of soul that you've been looking for and longing for all of your life. So I love how Augustine said it 15 centuries ago. He says, faith is to believe what we do not see and the reward of faith is to see what we believe. Amen to that. I, I mean, that's why I'm in this game, guys. Just trust me on that. I mean, I... I, I didn't become a pastor so I could deal with church management and staff issues and building campaigns and fundraising and, and leadership strategies. I mean, that's all fine, but honestly, if you took all that away from me tomorrow and said just love people, I'd fall down and call you blessed. Because that's why I got into this. I want to know God. How about you? And I want to trust in Him. And, and, and all the church is, at least all we should be, is a community of like-minded people that are pursuing that together. But we complicate it with so much more. But the reality is, at the end of the day, that's why I am in this. And, and now the story. I got to tell you, I just never tire when church is church and when church just becomes a simple community of people that tell stories of faith and then love each other with a head-turning kind of love all while we wait for the return of Christ. I've been here about eight years. I, I pastored three churches before I came here. One of them was a very short stint in Canada, three years. I, uh, I wasn't a good cross-cultural communicator in Canada. When people would ask me how it's going, I'd say they're adjusting to me well, which is not a good thing for a missionary to do. And so I, uh, I didn't last very long in Canada. Plus, it was a 108-year-old Baptist church that, that had been going downhill for a long time. Honestly, they just never changed since Elvis. And so they'd just been going downhill and, and they were about half the size they were at one time, but they convinced me they wanted to change. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so at the age of, what, I was like 31, I said, oh, okay, I can do it. And, uh, and, and I lasted about three years. We, it was good, but, but it was a tough road. Uh, at one point uh, in, our, in our changing of the church there, again, it was a 108-year-old Baptist church, uh, we wanted to change the name of the church. You're saying, why? Uh, well, the name of the church was Wortley Baptist Church. Need I say any more? And, and, and so I am an ordained Baptist minister. I don't tell you guys that very often, but the North American Baptist holds my, my ordination. And, uh, and, and yet in Canada especially, Baptist was, was really hard as, as a barrier to get beyond. Every time I'd invite somebody to my church, I, I, I'd say it's Wortley Baptist Church, and they'd say, well, I'm not Baptist. Like they, they really cared about that stuff. 
And so it wasn't like the South in America where Baptist is, is, is a pretty good name for some. This was a hard name to get around. So I, I told the board, and I was very naive. We ended up not changing the name because uh, in some church people's minds, that would be like changing the Bible. So I realized we weren't going to get that done. And, uh, but I told the board originally that um, I'd like to keep the word church in our name, which I thought was generous, and I wanted to get rid of Wortley and Baptist. And, uh, and it wasn't going to fly. There was an elderly couple in our church that I loved deeply. Uh, they were in my small group. They were so supportive of me. In fact, they would tell me all the time, we're really not for half of what you're trying to do, but we really love you, which I could take. <laughs> you know, I could. I could take that. And I, you know, I don't expect people always agree with me, but just love me and I'll be happy. It's like feed me and I'm happy. I don't care. And so um, th their names were Emerson and Phyllis. You can tell they were old. Late 80s, Emerson and Phyllis. They've been married 61 years. Just a sweetheart of a couple, but tough. Emerson was a tough guy. And uh, one day I was doing a home visitation of them, and, and this church name, church thing came up, and it changed the name of the church. And uh, Emerson goes, so what would you name it? And I said, well, you know, I said there's the Highland Golf Course right across from our church, and that's a nice old Scottish name, and so maybe we call ourselves like, you know, Highlands. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll never forget, he goes, Highland Baptist Church. I kind of like the name of that. And Phyllis comes running in from the kitchen. She goes, no, Em, you don't understand. She goes, he doesn't want Baptist in the name. And he about kicked me out of his house. So that ended that conversation. But I loved them a lot. About two months later, Emerson died. He was pretty elderly. They were up at their cabin upon Lake Huron. And um, Phyllis told me the most touching story. She said that, you know, they were sleeping in separate rooms because Emerson snored a lot. And, and uh, she went in to, to, to get him one morning and he was sitting on the edge of his bed, his feet were in the slippers, and he had just fallen back dead. And she said the obvious thing that happened is that he had woken up in the middle of the night and, and, and maybe was in some distress and got up to go get Phyllis and put his feet in the slippers, and God said, come home. And, and, he, and, and, and Phyllis herself said, you know, if you're going to go, that's not a bad way to go. And, and, and she was okay with that, but she wasn't okay with it. 61 years. I mean, I, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Um, you know, the, the, it, it, was a, it was a difficult time for her. She was very dependent on Emerson. That They were soulmates. This was going to be a hard journey for Phyllis, and we all knew it. As I was planning the funeral with her, I said at one point to her, I said, I am just so sorry about your loss. I know it's going to be hard. I mean, we're with you. Emerson's with the Lord. But I, but I know this is going to be tough. I'll never forget what she said to me, because I wrote it down right when I got home because this is why I'm a pastor. It's why I get a front row seat to the amazing things that God does. She looked at me and she said, Jamie, you need to understand the grace of God sustains us. I feel his presence lifting me up and holding me right now. In fact, he has never been more real. I, I got to tell you guys, that might not mean like a lot to you. But in all the things that I deal with in people and the crud and the messiness and the complexity, that's what God's really after. And you and me, he wants us to get to the point, because we can handle anything if we can get there, where after tons of quiet times, tons of church attendance, tons of Bible study, just doing all the disciplines we know to do to connect with God, that when the darkness hits, to be able to breach deep, and to experience his presence when you most need it. There is nothing like that.
I, I got to tell you, as a pastor, when you guys come to me with problems, I pray for the solution to your problems. I do. I pray for them all the time. But you know what I pray for more than anything else? Because I can't promise you that I can find a solution or even that God will give you a solution to all your problems. This is a fallen world, and it sucks. And so heaven is perfect. This place is not. Let's understand that. But you know what I pray for you more than anything else? I pray First, Second Corinthians chapter 1 over you guys all the time. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted me, Paul said. Paul the Apostle was in such a bad way at one point in his life. And in 2 Corinthians 1, where he says, I was despairing even life, he says, but God, the God of all comfort, comforted me. He experienced the presence of God in his darkest time. Or as the psalmist said, though there's weeping in the night, there is joy in the morning. See, that's what this is all about. That's what God is after at the end of the day. We think and we want him to be after a lot more than this. And again, he might, he might not. But Paul wasn't kidding when he said, now these three things remain. When all is said and done, you only got three things left. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But faith is a close second. And the reality is, is that you and I live in a world that longs for what we're talking about here today, this kind of faith. And what you need to see today, if this is not new to you, is that you're a carrier of this. Give me a head now that you understand that. John, you're a carrier of this. God loves you. He has invaded your life with the life-changing gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And he has given you faith. And though you might not want more, ask him for it. He'll give you more. But then help these people understand in our culture who dare to say to you, I'm a person of faith. Help them understand that faith has an object and that faith is so important because it connects us with God. Do that and you will find that sweet spot you're looking for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you for the clarity of your word, the Christmas of it. God, I, I thank you for that. And I thank you, God, that we have a definition of faith, that we have an object of our faith, who you are and who Jesus is and the promises of your word, and that, Lord, we even have an underlying statement in bold and italics on why all this stuff's so important, because it connects us with you. It's impossible to know you without it. So, God, may we go to the communion table now with these truths under our belt. May we worship you, Lord, for who you are in this time and at our venues and campuses. And, God, may you be pleased. And may you send us out here, Lord, as Hebrews 11 says, with assurance and confidence. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.